If you have a Bible with you or the Pew Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 5 through 9. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. We're continuing three parts uh, that Paul, uh, three sections that Paul gives us about what it looks like to live a spirit-filled life in our various relationships. We looked at husband and wife relationships, uh, parent-child relationships, and now we're looking at uh, employer-employee relationships. Ephesians 6, uh, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. Uh, this morning I have three points that I want to talk about. The first, I want to start by reflecting on this kind of passage in the New Testament because it raises um, some apologetic concerns, as it were, some objections potentially. Then I want to look at Paul's instructions for workers and look at Paul's instructions for bosses. First, uh, the ESV that I've read from this morning begins, bond servants obey your earthly masters. They use that term bondservants to alert us that the people being talked to here are a little bit different than what we might think of as 18th, 19th century slaves. And yet the word Paul uses here is slaves. And so that raises some serious questions for us. Is Paul here condoning slavery? Paul seems very conservative. Basically, his ethic in this passage seems to be, don't rock the boat. And so the question arises, can this be part of Scripture? Can this part of Scripture, rather, still be life-giving today? Or must it be done away with? Well, in this first point, what I want to remind you of is that the kingdom of God is like leaven. Jesus teaches us that in one of his parables. The kingdom of God is like leaven. Leaven is fermented dough, right? It contains yeast. Uh, when I make dough, I use somewhere around 1,000 grams of flour and maybe 60 grams of, of, of starter, of the leaven. And yet, that, even though it's much less, once you knead it into the dough, it spreads through the whole loaf and causes the whole loaf to rise. And Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God is like. It starts small, but then it works its way through all of society and transforms it. And so I want to start by noting that, yes, Paul does talk about slavery here, and he doesn't directly condemn it, but we need to remember that the kingdom of God is like leaven. First, we do need to recognize that slavery in the ancient world was not identical with the Atlantic African slave trade of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Uh, in general, I would say slavery in the ancient world was much more varied than slavery in the modern world. In the ancient world, slavery was not ethnically based. There were a variety of ways people ended up as slaves. They got into debt, 
and there was no bankruptcy, so they became slaves. They were captured in war. They were born as slaves. Some people apparently even sold themselves as slaves in order to advance their careers. In some cases, it was a good career move to sell yourself as a slave. Slaves held a wide variety of jobs in the ancient world. Prisoners could be sentenced as slaves in ship galleys, mines, and quarries, which were terrible jobs to have. Maybe you remember at the beginning of Spartacus, he's a slave in the mines. Uh, Spartacus is one of my favorite films. If you haven't watched it, then there's your homework for the week. But uh, he's a slave in the quarries at the beginning before he becomes a gladiator. But we know from inscriptions and epitaphs uh, that there were at least 55 different occupations that we know of that slaves held in the ancient world. Slaves were cooks, bakers, barbers, butlers, teachers, accountants, wet nurses, handmaidens, hairdressers, secretaries, seamstresses, shoemakers, physicians, prostitutes, farmers, and in some cases, slaves were managers of large industries, had hundreds of people working under them. Slaves in the ancient world, on average, only served as slaves for 10 to 20 years, and many slaves saved money to buy up their freedom. There was much variety in the treatment of slaves. Masters legally in the Roman world had the right even to sentence their slaves to death. Many slaves were beaten and sexually exploited, and so it was awful. But many other slaves seemed to enjoy a relative level of security as their food and housing was provided for. In some cases, being set free could actually be detrimental because they would have a lower standard of living, earning money as a free man than they had as a slave. Finally, in the ancient world, there seems to have been a broad variety of attitudes towards slaves. The philosopher Seneca quotes an apparently popular saying in the first century, all slaves are enemies. But he responds to this attitude you say these people are slaves. No, they are human beings. Philodemus, uh, another, uh, an author of a first century guide for, or, or, or a Roman guide for managing slaves, suggests slaves are best managed when their work, punishment, and food is kept moderate. Don't give too much of anything and your slaves will work well. Aristotle, for his part, thought slaves were slaves by nature that some people just by nature were servile and deserved to be slaves. And so he said it was inappropriate to talk about justice with regards to slaves since they are possessions, not persons. And here is the basic problem with slavery, ancient and modern. Regardless of how well some slaves might have been treated in the ancient world, slavery is still the owning of another human being. And therefore, from a Christian point of view, fundamentally inappropriate. It is interesting that no one in the ancient world, even the leaders of slave revolts, argued that slavery as an institution should be eliminated. So when slaves revolted, they didn't want to be slaves anymore, but they didn't think slavery as an institution should be done away with. It was simply a fixture of the ancient world, just like it would be hard for us to imagine doing away with employment in our world. Everybody has a job. Now, Paul does not directly attack the institution of slavery, but he, along with the early church, works the leaven into ancient Roman society that eventually permeates and transforms the ancient world. What is this leaven of the kingdom of God that ultimately transforms the ancient world's attitudes towards slavery? 
Well, throughout Paul's letters, including in this passage before us this morning, we see a number of revolutionary teachings. First, early Christians maintained all humans, slave or free, are made in the image of God and should be treated as image bearers. Second, in Christ, Paul reminds us several times in his letters, there is no more slave or free. All are equal in Christ. Third, Paul teaches, contrary to Aristotle, that justice applies even to how we interact with slaves. Justice applies to how we interact with all people. And finally, Paul teaches not only the equality of slaves with free men and women, but also the brotherhood of slaves and their masters. And so as masters and slaves began to worship together in early churches... They sat in the same pews together across the aisle from each other, uh, actually oftentimes standing in the early churches, but uh, as they worshiped together and were taught to see each other as equals and indeed as brothers and sisters in Christ, it began to transform the ancient world. Well, what does all this have to do with us? First, it's important to see that Paul here is working in the leaven into the dough that ultimately ends slavery. Although he doesn't outright attack the institution of slavery, if you work through his first principle, slavery as it was practiced in the ancient world, and especially as it was practiced in the early modern period, must be done away with. But it's a slow process, not a Marxist revolution. It's a slow process because the leaven of the kingdom of God ultimately has to be worked into human hearts. Human attitudes have to be changed, not simply external conditions. Second, Paul's principles that ultimately led to the end of slavery still need to work out in our world today. If we take seriously the principles of equality, justice, uh, brotherhood, can we still talk about people in our work as human resources, for example? Can we still think in terms of labor versus management? I don't think that we can really think in these common ways that the business world thinks if we take Paul's principles seriously. Third, and most relevant for us this morning, if Paul can tell slaves who worked simply for food and lodging to obey and respect their masters, how much more ought we who are paid fairly well by historical standards to behave in the same way toward our bosses? If Paul can tell slave owners to do the same, how much more ought bosses today listen up to Paul's words? So if Paul can say this to slaves, it applies even more to us. Let's turn then to Paul's teaching for workers and bosses. The next principle that we need to get our head around is that we need to work for your true boss. Work for your true boss. Before you can work for your true boss, you need to know who your true boss is. And so I ask you, who are you working for? If it's working in a, in a paid job, if it's working in the home as, a, as a, a parent raising your children, perhaps it's working with grandchildren, whatever realm you're working in, who are you working for? Are you working for your boss or kids? Are you working for your teacher to impress them, to get noticed, to get promotions? Do you work to impress your spouse so that your spouse will think well of you? Do you work to live up to the expectations of your parents? 
or your peers or colleagues? Are you working perhaps for yourself to prove something to yourself? In one sense, these are all fine motives that we do need to take into account. But in another sense, at a deeper level, if you're working for the approval of your boss, parents, spouse, peers, even for yourself, you'll end up either working too hard or not working enough. You'll either wind up a workaholic or a layabout. Either you have something to prove, a chip on your shoulder, and you never stop. You bring your work home with you in the evenings. You check your work email first thing in the morning and last thing at night. Or you think, my boss thinks I'm doing a good job, even if he doesn't know that I'm slow when I'm out on the back 40 or on a project on my own. My boss thinks I'm doing a good job, so why should I try any harder? Well, what's Paul's solution? He tells us four times in this passage, work for your true boss. Work for your true boss. He says, obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. At work as bondservants of Christ. Work as to the Lord. Work to receive back from the Lord. Paul tells us, work for your true boss, and your true boss is Christ. Here we meet, actually, a paradox of freedom in working for Christ. Imagine an ancient slave. Imagine for a moment we're in the first century in Ephesus. We're hearing Paul's letter read to us. And a slave is sitting here in our midst, or perhaps we ourselves are slaves. And the slave, hearing Paul's letter read to the church of Ephesus early in the morning before his workday began, this slave's master is a wicked brute, and the slave longs to be free. So he only works when the master is around watching him. He does as little as possible because he wants to be free from this nasty master. But this slave doesn't find freedom in this sort of disobedience, in only working when the master's watching. No, in fact, he's always on his toes. He's always listening for his master's approach. If anything, he's even more enslaved to his master because he's always thinking about if his master is watching him or not. But now Paul offers a better way. By obeying our earthly bosses, we can actually work for our heavenly boss. Our imaginary slave is in one sense no freer than before. He still has a master that he has to respect. And yet now he works hard because he is owned by Christ, not because he is owned by an earthly master. But he also doesn't need to fear getting caught by his earthly master anymore because he is obeying, not disobeying. And so he finds spiritual freedom in working for Christ and so, too, we can find freedom in our work by working for our true boss, by working for Christ as we obey our earthly bosses. What does this look like in our jobs? In just a moment, I'll point out how Paul tells us how this changes our attitude and how we think about work. But first, I need to point out what Paul is not saying. When he says work for Christ, he's not saying that Christians need to focus on evangelizing in the workplace. Certainly, you should share the gospel with your friends and neighbors and even co-workers. But Christians, uh, what he's saying here is that we should work in a way that leads to questions, perhaps. But Paul says we work for our true boss by obeying our earthly boss. 
That is to say, you have been called to a specific job, a teacher, dairy farmer, trucker, computer programmer, whatever that job is, you have been called to a specific job, and you honor Christ by doing that job to the best of your ability. A Christian should be known by their competence at work because they're the best carpenters, teachers, truck drivers, firefighters, farmers that they can be. That's how we work as Christians, not by using our time at work to evangelize. In some ways, even that's inappropriate because that's not what our boss has hired us to do. What then is Paul saying? He calls us to exercise our Christian imaginations. He calls us to use our Christian imaginations. He says, work as if for Christ. Work as if Christ is with you in the milk barn, in the classroom, on the job site, in the office with you. How would that change how you go about your day, picturing Christ next to you? How would you do things different if you pictured serving Christ as your customer instead of the person in front of you? If you imagine Christ eating the food that you grow or have prepared, Christ living in the building that you are working on. Well, exercising our Christian imagination and recognizing who our true boss is should change our attitude at work. Note that Paul commends a number of attitudes to us in this passage. He says we should be respectful. We should obey with fear and trembling. Elsewhere, Paul uses this phrase to describe how we ought to, our attitude of reverence towards God. So when he says obey with fear and trembling, he's saying be respectful towards your bosses, but not cowardly. It doesn't mean we never speak up and challenge uh, if, if our boss is going to take the wrong course of action, say that's inappropriate or wrong. Uh, but it does mean that we're always respectful if we have to speak up. Paul says we should obey with a sincere heart. There should be no deception in our work. We should work ethically. He says we should not work by way of eye service as people pleasers. Instead, instead we should work with integrity. That we work just as well when we are being watched as when we are not being watched. When I was in college, uh, during summers, I worked for a number of factories uh, that had swing shift, day shift, swing shift, and night shift. And at least in the factories I worked in, it was interesting to note that the swing shift and night shift crews rarely got as much done per hour as the day shift crews because the managers were in during the day shift, not in the evening or on the weekends. But Christians are called to work with integrity since Christ is always with us even if our manager isn't. Finally, Paul says we are to render service with a good will, or we might say cheerfully, joyfully. That really puts the point on it, doesn't it? That we're to go to work tomorrow with joy, with good cheer. God may be calling you to change your job. He might be saying the job you're in right now is not where you should be. But until you do change jobs, for the time being... Tomorrow morning when you punch in, when you go to work or to school, that is the job God has called you to. And so work it respectfully, ethically, consistently, joyfully, working for Christ our Lord. Recognizing who our true boss is also changes how we think about work. How we think about work. First, Paul teaches that there is dignity 
to all sorts of jobs. There is dignity. Aristotle, as I already mentioned, thought slaves were of a lower nature and therefore they deserved to do menial tasks that no one else wanted. But look at what Paul's saying. He says you can serve Christ in any job. You bring glory to Christ in any job. If you're pumping septic tanks, changing diapers, mucking barns, pulling barbed wire, insulating an attic. I'm trying to think of my least favorite jobs. Whatever your least favorite job is, there's dignity in that job as you can serve Christ in it. Second, Paul teaches the importance of all kinds of work. The work that slaves are doing, he says, is the will of God. He says, doing your job, you're doing the will of God. If we go all the way back to Genesis 2, this passage we keep re returning to in these uh, reflections of the last couple weeks, in that story, God creates humans and then places them in the garden to work it and to garden it. We're made to reflect God's own image by working in the world, by cultivating and developing and maintaining our world. And all those jobs are part of that. Pumping septic tanks, pulling barbed wire, insulating attics, changing diapers. It's all part of cultivating and caring for God's world. And so they're important things to do. And it's a helpful exercise to think about how your job fits into the big picture. What is God doing through your school or bank or farm or firm? It's true, some jobs are virtually pointless. They do little more than pay the bills. But most jobs also help transform the world in some way or another. And it's about how our job fits into the big picture. As you think about that, you might realize that it's very difficult to glorify God in the work you're doing. And that might be a prompt to change jobs. And that's a great freedom that we have in the modern world, that we can change vocations. But for the time being, work with cheer in the job that you're in. Third, Paul teaches us to think about our work for our true boss, that it will ultimately be rewarded by Christ himself. Know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Maybe working with integrity in your job makes a difference no one ever sees. Maybe it means actually your work is more costly than others, and so you lose customers at times. You could cut corners and save money, no one would ever know it. You could pocket the change. But Paul says that's never quite right. Your true boss is with you each day and knows what you do. But he doesn't say your true boss is sitting waiting to scold you when you do something you shouldn't. He says your true boss will reward you, even if your earthly boss never sees it. Paul then turns the corner and he, he talks to bosses. Uh, I know some of you here this morning, you have people that work under you, you manage people, and so this is particularly relevant. His basic principle then in verse 9 is this. We all have a boss. We all have a boss. No matter how much money you have, if you own your own business, you're self-employed, even if, as in Paul's day, you owned many, many slaves, ultimately, we all have a boss, our heavenly master who we are accountable to. In this light, Paul gives two uh, commands for employers, for masters. First, he simply says, do the same. Masters, do the same. Here is the principle that ultimately leads to the end of slavery. Do the same. There should be a reciprocity 
between masters and servants, a mutual concern, indeed, even in equality. Masters, too, should be respectful towards their servants, ethical, consistent, and cheerful in how they treat those who work for them. And how much more, then, should modern employers, modern employers act in this way towards their employees? Your employees are not so many human resources to be used up. They're persons to be respected and cared for. Uh, when I was in grad school, I worked for a restaurant for a number of years, and the owner of that restaurant was facing some serious health issues, and he was close to retirement age. And one time I was talking to him, I said, I said why don't you just sell the restaurant? It was in a prime location. He would have made a lot of money from selling it. But his response stuck with me. He pointed out a certain middle-aged waitress, and he said, what is she going to do for work if I sell the restaurant? And I realized his mindset was not that he owned this restaurant just to make money. He owned it in part as a way to provide for the people who worked for him. And that should be our mindset as well. Paul says, do the same. Do the same. Paul's revolutionary in our day. Uh, the New York Times headline this morning is about CEOs making huge amounts of money uh, while they have off in 2020. All the earnings are in from 2020. And a variety of businesses that have hospital has 11,000 employees on furlough, and yet the CEO is making millions and millions of dollars. And we need to hear this same lesson today. When businesses think nothing of laying off hundreds of people to reduce overhead, when businesses regularly underpay their employees to maximize short-term shareholder returns. But Paul says we have to do away with this whole way of thinking. Caring for your employees should be one of a business's top priorities. Caring and providing for employees. Second command, first, do the same. Second, Paul tells masters, stop your threatening. And logically, he doesn't just mean don't threaten anymore, just come up and abuse your employees. He's saying stop threatening and stop abusing your slaves. Stop the actual abuse. If we're to live this life out, we cannot manipulate, coerce, or guilt employees to try and make them more productive. At times, indeed, perhaps formal disciplinary actions are necessary. You may be in a position where you have to fire someone. But it should always be done as an adult-to-adult -adult interaction, not treating employees like children that you're scolding. Paul then gives two motivations, two reasons for these two commands. He says, do the same, stop your threatening, and then he gives two reasons. First, masters and servants, employers and employees, all ultimately... We all work. As Paul says, no, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. From the lowest employee on the totem pole to the CEO of the largest companies, to Jeff Bezos, we all have a boss. Indeed, we all have the same boss, our master in heaven. Both accountable to the same master, then we ought to all work for our true boss. We ought to all live as servants, as, as employees of our true boss. Second, Paul says this heavenly boss doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't play favorites. Paul says there is no partiality with him. We too easily assume that the rich and successful are therefore better than their peers. Look at this guy. He made oodles of money. He must be very good at something. He must be a very good person even. 
But Paul says it doesn't matter how rich you are, how many employees you have, how big of a company you run, how successful you are. You are still accountable to God's justice. We all have a boss. In conclusion then, what Paul is teaching us in these verses is that like a Christian marriage, like a Christian family, so Christian workers are called to present another picture of the gospel. It's what we're called to do. And if we live out this way of living that Paul is teaching us, we do provide a picture of the gospel. After all, Jesus taught his disciples about his mission in these terms. In Mark 10, he taught his disciples, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, Christ Jesus, our Lord, indeed the Son of God, he got off his heavenly throne, he came down to earth, and he took on the role of a servant. He came as a servant to serve. And if Christ came to serve, not to be served, then this certainly must be the attitude of his followers. To be a Christ follower means you too, I too, must be servants, not those being waited on. But when we work for Christ, we should also see in this, uh, people should see in our work a picture of Christ who came to serve. And in working for Christ, our true master, we find true freedom. We work for a boss who already approves of what you do. If you work for a company that has uh, you know, annual evaluations, your annual evaluation is already in. And what is that evaluation that Christ Jesus, your heavenly boss, gives you? Well, as he said in Mark 10, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This boss that we work for, he's a boss who gave his own life for his servants. He says, I love you and I want you for my own. And so I'm going to give my own life for you. This is the boss we work for, a boss who gave his life for his employees before we ever did anything to earn our salvation or to deserve to be saved. Let us pray. Christ, we must confess that although we are not slaves, our work in the world can often be just as frustrating as work in the ancient world. It's frustrating because we have sinful attitudes. It's frustrating because we're limited. We're finite beings. It's frustrating because we serve sinful bosses. And yet you have called us to a better way. You have called us to work respectfully, ethically, consistently, joyfully. We can only work that way when we see that you are our true boss and that you have already done this great work of giving yourself for us. I ask, Lord, that as we meditate on your word this morning, as we sing hymns to praise you, as we come to the Lord's table, may this truth settle ever deeper in our hearts and like the leaven of the kingdom of God, may it transform us. May it work itself out in everything we do starting tomorrow morning through the end of the week and the end of the month. Transform how we live and how we work. Amen.